From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Do Black Lives Matter? Yes. Is there systemic racism in America? Yes. Do we all have biases? Yes, certainly. Now, that wasn't very hard, was it? That was pretty easy, actually. That's Bill Bratton. Often called America's top cop, Bratton has led the police departments in Boston, Los Angeles, and New York twice. Bratton is one of the most prominent voices in American law enforcement. I worked with him closely when he was on his second tour of duty as commissioner of the NYPD, and I was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. He's out with a timely new book called The Profession, which is both a memoir about Bratton's life and career and a commentary on American policing and its challenges. Bratton joined me on Tuesday for a conversation hosted by the Stryker Center at Temple Emanuel in New York. We talk about the state of American policing in the wake of the George Floyd murder, including the debates around stop and frisk, broken windows policing, and the defund the police movement. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Reminder, folks, the third episode of Now and Then, our new podcast hosted by Heather Cox Richardson and Joanne Freeman is out. Subscribe for free and listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Melissa, who writes, We now know that Trump directly pressured his acting AG to investigate his election fraud conspiracy theories. It's disturbing, but I guess not surprising. Does this change anything legally for Trump? Well, thanks for your question, Melissa. Um, It's a good one. I don't think it materially changes anything for Trump. We have known about this kind of thing. There's more detail, as provided in emails obtained by CNN, which I will describe in a moment. The fact that Donald Trump and people around him were bringing pressure to bear on members of the Justice Department and other folks to try to bring lawsuits or maybe prosecutions and investigations in connection with what he thought were fraudulent elections in multiple states in the country in 2020 is unethical, immoral, goes against the law, goes against the facts, goes against reality. But I don't know what exposes him to to criminal exposure. The one caveat I will mention, though, is all of that goes, again, to building the case that what happened on January 6th, the insurrection, was something intentional on the part of Donald Trump. And every bit of evidence that shows that what Donald Trump wanted more than anything else in the world, was to cause election results to be overturned 
for election results not to be certified is part of the you know potential quote unquote case against Donald Trump. Will such a case ever be brought? It seems unlikely, but it remains to be seen. But I think it's worth reiterating what some of this activity was that Melissa asks about. And by the way, unlike with some other matters that get reported in the press, this is not speculation. This is not third-party hearsay. This information comes from emails sent within the Department of Justice itself during the transition period after the election. And I don't say this a lot, but some of this is pretty shocking. You have one example, Kurt Olson, a private attorney reaching out to an official at the Justice Department on December 29th, requesting a meeting with the top official there, the acting attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen, saying he could show up on an hour's notice. And he attaches to his email to the department official a draft complaint modeled after a Texas Supreme Court lawsuit, by the way, that failed, hoping that the U.S. Justice Department would bring a similar action. And he writes in the email, I still, I find this astonishing, quote, the president of the United States has seen this complaint and he directed me last night to brief A.G. Rosen in person today to discuss bringing this action. I have been instructed to report back to the president this afternoon after the meeting, end quote. So that's a proclamation that the president of the United States himself was ordering him to talk to the president's own attorney general about a matter personal to the president to take sides in an election to bring a lawsuit that had already failed elsewhere. That's not good stuff. Here's another one, corroborating prior reports that the chief of staff to President Trump, Mark Meadows, was engaging in his own pressure campaign. Among other things, Meadows tells the Justice Department there are allegations of signature match anomalies in Georgia. And then there's my personal favorite. Meadows sought to have the acting attorney general arrange a meeting between the FBI and a Giuliani ally pushing a particular conspiracy theory. The conspiracy theory was what? That Italy was using military technology and satellites to somehow change votes to Biden. And there's more craziness along those lines. What's really telling is the reaction of these high-level department officials all the way up to the acting attorney general, who, by the way, were handpicked by that White House. They are astonished, concerned, and not moved to action. The emails show that after Rosen received a YouTube video link about the Italian satellite conspiracy, he forwarded it to the acting deputy attorney general, Richard Donahue, who responded, quote, pure insanity, close quote. And there are multiple emails in which Donahue and other officials say they are not acting on anything. They're not setting up a meeting with Giuliani. They're not giving them time. That's not just anybody waving off these silly entreaties and unethical entreaties. It's people that they put in power in the first place. Now, to go back to your original question, does it change anything legally for Trump? I don't know that it does, but I think it's serious. It's important. And we should get more transparency and clarity as to how much of this went on, what the reactions were. Members of the House are calling for testimony from people in the department, including the former attorneys general on this matter and on other matters. And I think that should proceed. This question comes in an email from Cliff. What should we make of the news that the Manhattan DA's office is nearing the end of its investigation into Alan Weisselberg? Do you think he will flip on Trump? Of course, Cliff, you were referring to the CFO, the chief financial officer of the Trump organization, Alan Weisselberg, who's been rumored to be under investigation for quite some time by people in the Manhattan DA's office, which is investigating the Trump organization, famously and notoriously recently came into possession of Trump's tax returns and tax documents. One thing this shows is that the immediate speculation upon the reporting that a grand jury, a special grand jury had been convened, meeting three times a week, that initial speculation was that perhaps this was the end game with respect to Donald Trump himself, and that evidence was being 
presented to the grand jury for a potential charge against Donald Trump himself. It now appears that they're one or two steps away from that. All the reporting and the evidence and sort of the sense that I have about what's going on with the DA's office and the grand jury is that they're building a case that they think is strong against Alan Weisselberg for the purpose of getting him to flip, cooperate against other people. And since Alan Weisselberg is so high up in the organization, that other people or person is likely to be Donald Trump. Do I think he will flip on Donald Trump? I've talked about this question many, many times over the years. I do see commentators from time to time say with some certainty and assurance that he will or he's likely to. I I don't know if that's the case. I think what's interesting here is he clearly is not ready to flip yet. His mind needs to be changed. Sometimes you have instances, in my own experience, where the moment an FBI agent shows up or a DE agent shows up or a police detective shows up, the person realizes the game is up. They'll flip immediately. I recite an example of a case in my book where an insider trading target flips on the spot and wears a wire, I think that very night or the next day. And then at the other end of the spectrum, and I've overseen cases like this too, you have someone who is approached, doesn't flip, investigated, doesn't flip, charged, doesn't flip, goes to trial, convicted, doesn't flip, even though they had information to give on other people higher up in the food chain, and they go quietly to prison for a period of years. Where on that spectrum is Alan Weisselberg? I don't know him personally. One factor that's important is he's been loyal for decades to the Trump organization, presumably to Donald Trump himself. That doesn't mean he won't flip, but it doesn't mean he will. The other thing I think is kind of interesting in the reporting from this, in this great article in the New York Times that talks about all this is that it looks like the case they're trying to build against Alan Weisselberg, according to the New York Times, is based on failure to pay taxes on various generous fringe benefits, including the provision of an apartment to him and his family, the provision of, of cars, specifically Mercedes-Benz's, and tuition for his grandchildren. There's no mention in the article, but the article could be incomplete depending on who the sources are. What's missing is reporting of allegations that they might have or evidence they might have against Alan Weisselberg that he himself is involved in whatever bad conduct they ultimately hope or expect to charge Donald Trump with, if there is such evidence. Instead, it seems to be the side business of failure to pay taxes on fringe benefits, which also confirms that they really seem to be set upon putting pressure on Weisselberg to flip. So we shall see. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. 
But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. My guest this week is Bill Bratton. He's led the police departments in Boston, Los Angeles, and New York City. He rose to national prominence as commissioner of the NYPD in the 1990s when he oversaw a historic decrease in crime. He was later brought back for a second go-around in 2014. Bratton's new book, The Profession, tells the story of the many reforms that he has championed over the course of his career, but it also addresses the current debates about systemic racism in policing, the defund the police movement, and how to bring policing back from this moment of crisis. On Tuesday, I spoke with Bratton about all of that and more at a book event hosted by the Stryker Center in New York. Hello, Commissioner. Hey, how you doing, Preet? Good to be with you and all of the guests. It's great to be uh, a guest at the Stryker Center. I'm sorry we couldn't be in person. I want to say at the outset, congratulations on your book, The Profession, A Memoir of Community, Race, and the Arc of Policing in America. As you can see, I have a lot of yellow post-its in the, in the book, so we have a lot to talk about. And I, I should also say at the outset, I miss working with you. Maybe not everyone appreciates that we overlap for a time. When you were commissioner at the New York City Police Department and I was the United States Attorney, and we always got along great, and it was a great working relationship, and I, I miss that time very much. Those were better times. In some ways, let me ask you a question. Do you think cops will like this book? Well, first off, uh, Preet, I'm not used to being questioned by a uh, federal prosecutor. Do I need a Miranda warning before we begin? You're not getting one. I'm not getting one. Okay. <laughs> not right. getting one. <laughs> okay. So we know the ground rules then. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry. What was the question, please? Do you think cops will like this book? I would hope they would uh, because it's about them. It's about uh, uh, a journey that I took for almost 50 years with them, as one of them, as a leader of them. And there's a lot of cop stories in here. There's a lot of stories about a lot of great cops that many of whom you work with and know, New York cops, Los Angeles, uh, who the audience here would not be familiar with. But it's, uh, in some respects, it's a cop story. Do you think there are things in this book that progressives will like? Uh, Whatever that means. There's something in this book for everybody that, uh, I'm a centrist. I'm not a Democrat, not a Republican. Uh, my goal is, as a centrist, to try and get everybody onto common ground, to see each other, to understand each other's perspective, and then see if we can work together. Uh, so the progressive label for a long time in policing, I describe myself as a progressive, but uh, in recent times, that term has really indicated somebody pretty far over to the left. And as a centrist, that uh, I don't think of myself as way over to the left, that's for sure. But you, you do consider yourself to be... A police reformer, which is interesting, and you, you, you say early on in the book, something I think that's very important, you say, quote, among the cops and their union, there is a widespread belief that all police reformers are anti-police. This is wrongheaded. 
I'm a police reformer, and I defy anyone to call me anti-police, end quote. When you were running the the 35 different police departments that you ran over the course of your career, (laughs) I I lose track of the number. Did you use the the language of reform? And and what what was the reaction if you did? I constantly use the language of reform because... Policing is always reforming. It is, uh, it's one of the, the beauties of it. It's not stagnant. It's always moving forward, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, sometimes begrudgingly, but it is always moving forward. So where we are today in 2021 is nowhere near where we were in 1970 when I first came into the Boston Police Department as a patrolman uh, walking a beat. Uh, the changes have been phenomenal, exciting. Many of those changes I helped to lead, many of those changes people who uh, I work with helped to create. And it's been an exciting uh, uh, career, if you will, and a lot more excitement to come in the 21st century. So there are a few things I want to begin with, and then we'll talk about some of those reforms and talk about some things that you stand by and how your thinking has evolved and how policing has evolved over your long career. So I'm going to ask you three questions, yes or no answers. Those are the that ground sounds rules. sounds like a prosecutor. Uh, <laughs> those are the ground rules. Okay, those are the ground rules, okay. You answer each of these questions in the book, but I want to ask them of you, so that we can talk about the broader point. And I think this is very important. Question number one is, do black lives matter? Yes. Yes. Question number two, is there systemic racism in America? Yes. Question three, do we all have biases? Yes, certainly. Now, that wasn't very hard, was it? No, it was pretty easy, actually. Pretty easy. And, and you talk about, in the book, the evasiveness with which some people answer, do black lives matter? And they don't want to say yes. And it's a yes or no question. And I think you say only a bigot would answer that question equivocally. Why is it so hard for lots of folks, including people in law enforcement, to answer those three questions that I think are pretty fundamental with a simple yes? I think it reflects the complexity of our lives today that people are so concerned about being labeled in the way they answer. And the simplicity of a yes or no Uh, is very frightening to a lot of people because they want to follow that yes or no up with an explanation so their answer is not misconstrued. And so uh, it it, it just reflects the complexity of the times we're in. Now, there's a more complicated question that's a subset of one of those questions, and that is, is there systemic racism in policing? And your answer to that question in the book is yes, but. Yes, but. Why is that your answer? Well, my my earlier uh, response about the complexity of responding, the yes, but is there uh, certainly among certain offices, maybe among certain departments, but not uh, in the profession itself, not in the almost 700,000 members of that profession. uh, And so that's the concern I have with the uh, painting with the broad brush, the broad labeling, if you will, that uh, I refuse to believe a profession that I served in for almost 50 years and I think I know intimately. Uh, I acknowledge its faults. I basically uh, uh, certainly uh, am a cheerleader for its many successes. But uh, some of its faults is there are too many people in the profession who shouldn't be in it, who have uh, racist uh, uh, beliefs, who have uh, ethnic uh, uh, issues. And the challenge is to keep them out in the first place or if they are discovered during the course of their uh, time in the profession to get them out. How do you keep them out? It seems like a thing easier said than done. Good news is that we've gotten a lot better at that, that uh, the screening of candidates, particularly in larger departments, uh, I think in smaller departments, oftentimes it's more problematic, but take the NYPD, the LAPD. 
the complexity of the uh, process of looking at an applicant is it's mind-boggling in many respects. We now have the ability to, uh, in California, you can give lie detector tests. We also uh, access uh, potential officers' social media. One of the requirements when they come in is to sign off on us accessing their social media to give us all the social media that they're up on. So that tells you an awful lot about a person's background. And then the uh, background screening now is very complex, including psychological screening. And now with our better understanding of the issues of bias, implicit bias, we can do a much better job keeping people out of the organization. And we're developing very significant systems, tracking systems, risk mitigation systems that allow us to identify officers who, as they're exposed to the complexities of policing, maybe their attitudes change, maybe their uh, uh, hidden biases begin to uh, become more evident. So we have a better chance of catching them before they come in and a better chance of catching them once they are in. So you just listed off a number of, of tools and methods and systems by which you can screen out people who should never become cops. And that sounds great, but those things have to be used. What's your sense as an expert on this as to how many police departments in the country, including the smaller ones, are taking advantage of that kind of technology and, and, and tools? Well, the devil is in the details, and in the details of American policing, uh, that is the problem. There's 18,000 of them. The average police department in this country, uh, and this would be hard for people uh, living in New York City to understand, is between 10 and 25 officers. And we have 3,600 counties. We have 50 states and some numbers of territories. Uh, they all have different standards, hiring procedures, protocols, and that is one of the uh, deficiencies in American policing in the sense trying to have national standards is very difficult. Uh, and so I've watched over the years as the larger departments in particular, and at the state level, uh, the complexity of the hiring process has strengthened. And the risk mitigation systems, risk management as we call it, uh, the rail system in New York, the team system in Los Angeles, have uh, really borne fruit over time. But the smaller agencies just don't have the ability uh, that the larger ones uh, have. And so many of our issues uh, in our smaller agencies, the uh, case of Ferguson, Ferguson uh, with the incident back in 2015, 2014, caused national reverberations, is an example of a small department that had many uh, uh, problems that uh, were not detected until after the event of the uh, incident involving uh, uh, Mr. Brown. You mentioned Ferguson. One of the problems with the Ferguson department that's been written about in at least one report is that they were largely in place to build revenue for the community, uh, for the municipality, which I think most reasonable people would say that shouldn't be one of the main purposes of a police department to raise revenue. That's a great point. And uh, that is the reality in many smaller departments that uh, uh, had a lot of experience with the uh, departments in that area of the country. Uh, and a lot of them are basically revenue generators. And unfortunately, so often that falls on the back of uh, minorities, blacks in particular. And that is an issue. And that raises another issue that police are under the control of government, under mayors, boards of selectmen, uh, town managers, and don't operate independently, usually a political leadership and the laws that are passed by that political leadership. So that in the case of Ferguson, so much of the activity of that department was politically directed by the political leadership, the elected leadership of that particular community. 
And that's something that uh, needs to be more fully understood when we're attacking the police or going after uh, why they do what they do. Uh, we technically uh, and uh, lawfully, legally, uh, have to operate with un- under civilian elected control. And uh, so, so much of what's wrong with American policing is reflective of what's wrong with American politics. Are you able to answer this question from afar? Should an officer like Derek Chauvin, who killed George Floyd, should he ever become a cop in the first place? Or, or can you not answer that question? That's some of the act- uh, uh, review of his background that uh, would be necessary in the sense of uh, a really in-depth look at his history on the department, the disciplinary history, but even prior to coming on the job. The fact that he was a training officer uh, compounds the issue, that the three uh, officers who were with him, several of them had only been on the department several days and were assigned basically under his supervision as a, I believe uh, he was a field training officer. So how did he achieve that position if, in fact, uh, he was a field training officer, which is intended to be given to officers who are role models for the rest of the uh, younger officers on the force? What do you feel about the number of officers, active duty police officers, who reportedly participated in the January 6th insurrection? Do they have any business being cops? They do not. Uh, I have strong feelings about that uh, event on January 6th. But for the actions, the bravery, the commitment of the Capitol Police, despite lack of leadership, despite lack of political support, uh, but for their actions on January 6th, our government may have come close to collapse. Uh, And the reason we call that event an insurrection, it effectively was an insurrection that was politically led and inspired. So uh, there's an example where officers in that instance put their lives on the line. And the fact that there were military personnel police personnel, assaulting those officers, assaulting our nation's capital. Uh, It's disgraceful. So I have no uh, empathy or sympathy for any of those that have now been investigated and being indicted by the FBI. And hopefully as they go to trial, many will be found guilty. I want to go back to talking about change and the things that need to change and the things that need to stay the same. You have a line in the book that you say is an old police expression that I had not heard before, but that I enjoyed very much. And you say, quote, Two things that cops hate are change and the status quo, end quote, (laughs) which describes probably a lot of professions. Those are the two things that they gripe the most about. Prosecutors, too. So my first question is, you've been doing this a long time, and you've been responsible for a lot of change and a lot of reform, to use your language. And the question is, at this point, in the summer of 2021, does policing need sort of small changes and tweaks, or are we still in in the market for very sweeping, significant change. I'm hoping that we're in a period of time in which there'll be sweeping transformational change for American policing. I think the deficiencies... But what have you been up to for 50 years, Commissioner? It's an evolutionary process. From time to time, it's marked by revolution. And in the 70s, we had a bit of a revolution. In the early 90s, we had a revolution in our embrace of community policing and the country getting serious about dealing with a crime problem that had grown for 25 years. Uh, 9-11 basically was another revolution in the evolution where American policing had to change dramatically from just dealing with its 200-year history of dealing with crime and disorder and now swing over to taking on the issues of terrorism, something you certainly know as a prosecutor in the New York office, Southern District. And then the complexities of the 21st century have 
uh, and a continuing revolution in terms of what police are expected to deal with. Cybercrime, human trafficking, all the issues that the uh, technology world, the digital world, have created for law enforcement challenges. So we have been in an evolutionary period marked by revolution, and for the last 20 years, I'd argue we've been in a continuing revolution because the profession has been changing that much and being challenged that much. So at this moment, we need a revolution or evolution? Uh, at this moment, we need, and I've been advocating along with uh, many of my former colleagues, major city chiefs, we need a national crime commission to do a top-to-bottom review of how do we get to the mess that we're in and how do we get out of it. Instead of doing it piecemeal, a committee here, a study there, uh, I don't know what the national aversion is to this idea of something so central to our country, so central to our government, the idea of police. And I'm not sure what that tone is that's coming in at the moment. <laughs> Maybe that's the president calling about the National Crime Commission. Would you serve well, on such well, a commission? Actually, he's, got, he's kind of busy right now overseas. But when he gets back, I hope one of the things that he might focus on, Preet, uh, is just that. Because uh, let's face it, we're never going to get out of the race problem without solving the police problem. The two are so entwined and have been throughout our history. And I write in the book, as you know, that about the idea that uh, – you can't solve the problem without us, but wouldn't it be wonderful if we were a significant part of the resolution of the 400-year uh, history of race issues in this country? But what does that take as far as the police and race? It takes, because it takes leadership, takes courage. It takes uh, uh, basically finding, I, I, I use the expression common ground. One of my favorite books was uh, Common Ground. It was a book about the desegregation of schools and uh, housing in Boston in the 70s when I was a young cop and sergeant. Wonderful book. And it is the idea of getting people with very divergent opinions and views, trying to get them onto common ground so they can see each other, hear each other, and maybe find that there are some things that they can't agree on that they can move forward on. Something that the Congress of the United States used to do, but uh, unfortunately no longer seems capable of doing. But moving forward on police and race issues, that uh, it, it's challenging. It's going to be uh, threatening to many, but uh, it needs to be done. Uh, as a, as a, I, I think of myself as a transformative leader, uh, helping to transform policing with CompStat and with some of the other innovations that we uh, were able to put into place. But uh, it's going to require a much bigger effort, a national effort, if you will. You mentioned CompStat. I should, I should note, you may not remember this. But when I was a U.S. attorney, you invited me to a Comstat session. I do remember. And I have, I've never seen anything like it. And, it. and it lived up to its billing for people who are unfamiliar. And you can elucidate this further. I wish you could have seen it back in the uh, days back with Louie Anamone and Jack Maple. That's when it was Jack really, Maple, uh, who was one of the <clears throat> originators of the program that's been adopted by many police departments around the country and indeed around the world, that is fact-based, that is measurement-based, that goes into you know, granular detail, precinct by precinct, block by block, to figure out where the crime is. But the thing that struck me, and you describe in the book with some color, is what a difficult audience that is. So I remember sitting there, and I've been in front of a lot of tough audiences, including courts of appeal and others. And for a, you know, a police detective or a sergeant or a precinct commander to have to present to the commissioner and all the leadership in detail about you know, a particular robbery pattern that's happening in the precinct, that's quite a thing. Why is that effective? 
What's difficult, I think, for most people to understand is how poorly police did in the 70s and 80s, my early uh, uh, time in policing, in literally dealing with crime. Uh, we were focused on responding to crime after the fact, uh, how long did it take us to get to a 911 call, how many arrests and clearances did we take. One of the things that I think I led uh, in American policing was the embrace of uh, Sir Robert Peel's nine principles of policing when he created the Metropolitan Police in England in 1829, really the birthing of policing in a democracy. And the first principle is the basic mission for which the police exist is to prevent crime and disorder. Starting in the 70s, coming out of the turmoil of the 60s, police no longer focused on prevention because we were told by government, by all the experts, we couldn't do anything to prevent crime. Society was going to focus on what they thought were the causes of crime, the economy, racism, uh, poverty. Those were influences. They're not the causes. The causes of crime are people, bad people in most instances, who commit crime. So the police role is to prevent crime and disorder. And what happened in New York City, most of this audience on today are New Yorkers, will understand. In the 70s and 80s, police paid no attention to disorder. It's something that's happening in the city in this country once again, unfortunately, at the moment. Those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it, and we are repeating the history of the 70s almost verbatim. And so for 20 years, we paid no attention to disorder. And as George Kelling in Broken Windows artfully pointed out, you don't take care of the little things, it creates an atmosphere where bigger things flourish. And what flourished in New York in the 70s and 80s, crime and disorder. Fortunately, in the early 90s, we focused back on a community policing philosophy, which echoed Sir Robert Peel's. And that was the idea that community policing focuses on partnership, police and community shared responsibility to identify what other problems they want the police to focus on with the community. And thirdly, as importantly, the focus is on preventing it. Nobody wants to, the satisfaction of having an arrest made after they've raped, been raped or robbed or had their car stolen. They don't want it to happen in the first place. So it's a totally different model of policing. And where CompStat comes into the equation was it was an accountability system that held precinct commanders in New York, there's 76 of those, held them accountable for one, knowing about crime, where it was occurring, who was doing it, and most importantly, what were they going to do about it? And it revolutionized American policing. And for 30 straight years, up until 2019, when the legislature in New York got into the picture, we were reducing crime to the extent that over that 30-year period of time, homicides were reduced by 90% in New York from uh, almost uh, 2,243 in 1990 down to less than 300 around 2019. And overall crime, 80% in America by over 40%. And then, like that, it all began to change in 2019. So CompStat is part of that evolution that was a revolution that's been driving uh, a lot of our crime fighting for the last uh, 25 years. So you said a lot of things there that I want to get at in a little bit more detail. First, you mentioned broken windows. And, you know, that's a term that many people interpret in different ways. You spend some time talking about what you mean by that in the book uh, and standing by it largely. I'm 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 a, I'm a strongest proponent and advocate and implementer of it. But but do you understand why in 2021, given lots of things and disparate impact on certain communities, depending on what the police approach is and depending on what the makeup of the community is, and whether it's a college community or it's a you know a, a working class community in New York City, do you understand why some people have problems with the concept of broken windows policing? 
Oh, I do. It's basically going back to the idea of seeing uh, where they're coming from, what they think it is, uh, uh, why they think it uh, has disparate impact on a particular community, in this case, New York, whether it be the black or brown community. But broken windows... But doesn't uh, that cause you to rethink the, the way you thought about broken windows policing? Uh, not, not to rethink, but actually to be, better explain it. And in explaining it, uh, broken windows is community policing. Why? Because it's what the public wants the police to address. So if you look at the 311 calls that come into the NYPD, uh, the majority of them come in from the poor communities of the city where it brings police into their neighborhood. And that's a concern by minority communities that uh, over being over-policed, but we are responding to calls for help. And what are so many of those calls? It's not for the rapes and the murders and the robberies, which unfortunately uh, a large number of those do occur in poor communities. But they want us to deal with the drug dealer on the corner. They want us to deal with the out-of-control party at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. They want us to deal with the, uh, the drunk uh, urinating on their doorstep, the prostitute on the street. Those quality-of-life offenses that deteriorate a neighborhood. And I don't care if you're a, a black, a Latino, a Asian, a white, that nobody wants to have their neighborhood out of control where they feel unsafe. And whether you're living on Park Avenue or you're living over in Brownsville, you want to feel safe. And disorder makes everybody feel unsafe. So the obligation of the police, the obligation of me, is to explain what it is we're doing, why we're doing it, but then to work with the community so that like a doctor dealing with a patient, what is the right amount of medicine to give to the patient to make the patient feel better? And that, that, the devil is in the details. Please right. cheat, please cheat like doc, doctors. Wanted- that, yeah. uh, that we each have a different patient. New York is very different than L.A., and uh, L.A. is very different than Boston. By broken windows policing, you, you do not mean, and you're explicit about this in the book, you don't mean zero tolerance. Oh, not at all. With, that's, res- that's with respect complete- to every single possible infraction. Zero tolerance, the problem with that term, the only zero tolerance we had going back to uh, the 90s when that term was first used by us uh, was dealing with, uh, we had strategies for gun violence, youth violence, uh, domestic violence, but we had zero tolerance for police corruption, which was another strategy, and you recall the police corruption of the early 90s in New York City. So zero tolerance uh, was a term that a British Home Secretary, a shadow Home Secretary visiting New York to understand why crime was going down so dramatically, seized on that term and applied it to all broken windows enforcement and took it back to London. Zero tolerance is not something you don't want the police to engage in because it means that for every offense, they're going to make an arrest. For every offense, they're going to issue a summons. You want the officer to have discretion working with his community. Can you get away with an admonition? Get off the corner. Do you need to issue a citation? Do you need to make an arrest? So the idea is zero tolerance takes away from police officers discretion. And you don't want to take that discretion away because you want that officer on the beat that officer in the neighborhood, to be able to respond to what the community wants in their community. So I, I understand what you're saying. In part, there's another explanation you give for the importance of uh, broken windows policing that I think is even more compelling. And that is with respect to some low-level offenses, that is the process by which officers find people who have actually committed more serious crimes. So there's a disagreement between you and the Manhattan District Attorney, I think, about whether turnstile jumpers should be prosecuted. You have time as the chief of, of, of the transit police. And your argument is in part, I think, that when you go after low-grade crime, some people who are committing serious crimes and violent crimes and gun crimes, 
often along the way commit these low-grade quality-of-life crimes too, and this is a way to get them out, uh, off the street or to hold them accountable for you know, bench warrants that they may have ignored. How important is that a part of this? Let me give you a recent example of that. There was a, a, a the rise in subway crime that once again is occurring and taking us back to the bad old days of the 90s. There were uh, three uh, uh, young men who got onto the subway system and in a short period of time assaulted a number of passengers as the train rumbled uptown. In the effort to identify them, they went to the videos and they have video arrays at most turnstiles. And uh, one of the ways they identified one of the three assailants, and I think this involved a couple of knifings, if I recall correctly, was a video of uh, one of the assailants doing what? Vaulting over the turnstile. He first stops, he looks up and down the platform to see if he can see a cop, doesn't see one, vaults over the turnstile, doesn't pay the fare to get into the system. Back working with Jack Maple in the 90s when I was chief of transit police, when we had 250,000 people a day not paying the fare, going over the turnstiles, under them, et cetera, we started arresting them because basically we needed to stop that problem. One out of every seven that was stopped was found to be wanted on a warrant, already a warrant, a need for subway crime. One out of every 21 was found to be carrying some type of weapon from a box cutter up to Uzi submachine guns. Over time, that fare evasion got so low that the MTA stopped counting it for a while because it cost more to count it than what they were saving on the fare evasion. We changed behavior by controlling it, but we were able to adjust our enforcement up and down. Unfortunately, right now, some of the prosecutors and good friend of Cy Vance, we worked in partnership on a lot of issues. The fare evasion issue is one in which if you send the wrong message that it's okay to evade the fare, they're going to evade the fare. And who's going to come in evading the fare? The criminals. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an argument worth having a discussion about. But I think uh, some of what's going on in New York at the moment, indeed in the country, is we've pulled back too much on quality of life enforcement. Uh, and it basically then encourages the criminal element. If I can get away with this, what else can I get away with? My conversation with Commissioner Bill Bratton continues after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Let's talk about a different issue. More policing doesn't necessarily mean more public safety. And it can come at a cost that's not justified. And the thing I'm talking about, of course, is stop and frisk or as you call it, stop 
question and frisk. Before you came aboard for this for the second time as police commissioner in New York, I think the figure is that New York City police officers at the height in a year were making 700,000 stops. And by the time you had been in office for a period of time, what was the number? Uh, last year it was 8,000. So how did we get to the point where we were doing 700,000 stops and it wasn't really gaining us, it wasn't really gaining us anything. And I, I understand you want to be careful about how you speak about your predecessor, although you're not always careful about that. How do we get to the point where we're measuring, where that's the thing that we do to the tune of hundreds of thousands of times, and then it drops down to a tiny fraction of it, and you realize that the sky did not fall? How does that happen? In 1994, as police commissioner, that we began to significantly increase the numbers of arrests, et cetera, for a city that was out of control. And uh, we increased the numbers of stop, question, and frisk. Uh, a Supreme Court uh, case, uh, Terry versus Ohio, sets the parameters for how you do that. But it was the understanding that by beginning to control behavior, we would increase, like a doctor and a seriously ill patient, giving a high dose of arrest summonses, et cetera. But over time, the patient would get better and we could reduce the dose. And effectively, that's what happened. But starting in 2002, uh, uh, when Ray Kelly came in as commissioner with Mike Bloomberg, they were dealing with the catastrophe of 9-11. And uh, Ray and uh, Bloomberg did a phenomenal job creating a counterterrorism intelligence entity, a lot of which you dealt with certainly during your time and our time together, and kept the city safe for decades against issues of terrorism. But what was not widely known was dealing with the fiscal crises in New York, the 2008, et cetera, was Bloomberg was reducing the size of the police force by 7,000 officers. And Commissioner Kelly, uh, understandably working for the mayor that he worked closely with, uh, did not publicly complain about that loss of officers, but rather tried to come up with other ways to police with many fewer police. 7,000 officers comes down to about 85 to 100 fewer police officers in every precinct, a huge loss of personnel. So he came up with a program called Operation Impact. And that program uh, took the 25 most dangerous precincts based on crime statistics and each academy class, which would graduate twice a year, 1,000, 2,000 young kids, were then put into those impact areas. And they were encouraged to be active. And one of the things they were very active doing was stop, question, and frisk. Problem was, there were a lot of these young officers with very little supervision. And over time, whether they, it was being done properly or not, it began to be challenged in the courts. The black community began to raise significant concerns because the numbers were increasing. If, if the city's getting so much safer, why are we doing so many more stops? And I think Commissioner Kelly uh, really firmly believed, he and Mayor Bloomberg, that the reason crime kept going down was- They thought it was causation. They thought that doing yeah, that- Exactly. I did, not, I did not believe that in the sense of as an observer, having moved back to New York from LA and began- to challenge that, and many others did. Uh, Zach Carter, who was the, East, the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District, was questioning, for example. And when de Blasio ran for mayor, he was in last place in that race, but then he seized on the stop, question, frisk issue, and that resonated particularly with the black population. And in a small turnout election, he got elected on that issue. And people misinterpreted what he said. He was not going to stop it. He was going to reduce it even further because what had happened between 2010, 700,000 stops, and 2014, there were a series of court issues, court actions, a federal court decree that basically the department started reducing the number of stops. 
So when I came in in 2014, previous year there had been 140,000. During my three years, during my successor's three years, Jimmy O'Neill, and during, I think, uh, the first year of his successor, Dermot Shea, crime went down every year, even as the enforcement levels went down. Because why? The city was just so much safer, that there were fewer people committing crime, fewer people evading the fair. Uh, it was a very different city. And then it changed dramatically almost overnight. But uh, I, I strongly believe that one of the things you do as a police chief, you're like a physician. You're constantly listening to your patient. What, what, what's ailing you? What, how much medicine do I give you for that ailment? Am I giving you too much? Am I giving you too little? And this and, was an overdose? I'd like an, an overdose, basically. So we, we OD'd, unfortunately, on that. And the shame of it, uh, because Ray Kelly and Mike Bloomberg had great uh, uh, support in the black community. But on this issue, uh, they lost it. And effectively, uh, 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 Mayor de Blasio won the election on it. Yeah, I mean, my, I found in my experience, this is maybe outside of law, law enforcement as well, if you give someone a tool, they become attached to the tool. And they begin to think that the tool whether it's sound or not, or whether it's outgrown its usefulness or not, is the thing that's allowing them to do their job, whether it's being able to charge mandatory minimums or withhold discovery until the eve of trial, you know, whatever tool or advantage that cops and prosecutors feel that they have, they don't want to give up. And it's good to see examples of these kinds of things to show that you should always be re-examining the tools you have. Um, I got just a few minutes left, but so I, w I want to go into this. I found it interesting how you talk about the role of police and what the eventual role of police should be. There is this debate about defund the police. Uh, I am with you, Commissioner, on the, on the question of whether or not, if that, is meant liter if that is meant literally, literally defund or abolish the police. I think that's silly. It's a, it's a, it's a not serious at this moment it, in it's time. Not, it's not silly. It's stupid, downright it's, stupid. It's, it's, it is. Um, you, know, you think of what would happen in a state of nature with no police force. We might as well get rid of our military. But on this more complicated question of on a going forward basis, what things cops should do and what things other social agencies, government agencies should do, there's not that much difference between your thinking and some other people's thinking, except as I see it in the book, a question of timing. <clears throat> you say this on the, on the second to last page, penultimate page of your book. You say, quote, speaking of cops, quote, too few have been asked to do too much with too little for too long. And it has finally caught up with us. I would divest the police, that's a D word, divest. I would divest the police of such social service responsibilities as dealing with the homeless, the mentally ill, the addicted, but only when excellent programs have been designed and are in place at agencies specifically empowered and able to fulfill them. That will cost a lot of municipal money, but if it solves a problem that has expanded crime and exploded disorder, it will have been well worth the investment, end quote. You're not that far off from folks who think that some of these responsibilities shouldn't fall on the shoulders of cops in the first place. Well, part of the reason that cops are in such trouble at the moment in the sense of uh, the attacks upon them in the profession is that government and society have failed over the last 50 years at dealing with those issues of the homeless, the emotionally disturbed, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the drug problem. Uh, and despite major efforts on the part of government to deal with it, it has failed abysmally. All you have to do is walk a few blocks in any street in New York and you see that failure. And what happened as things began to fail, the safety nets that had been put in place as they disappeared, the last safety net in any society is the police. And over the last couple of years, that safety net has frayed because of the overburdening 
of that net by the explosion of homeless, the explosion of the emotionally disturbed, and shame on government that's still closing down psychiatric beds in the state of New York, even as there's an incredible explosion in the emotionally disturbed in our streets. The opioid epidemic, the fentanyl epidemic, uh, they're all expanding. And policing, meanwhile, is shrinking. In the late 90s, we had 800,000 police. Last year, I think there were 686,000 police. And what's happening this year as the police are being attacked and defunded, the ranks are growing even smaller. So that safety net is growing smaller. No, uh, in terms of defund has several uh, uh, aspects to it. Some people want to move the money to other agencies. All well and good if they give enough money that that agency can take on the responsibility. But I'll make a prediction for you. It's not going to happen. And who's going to be the agency of last resort? The police. So I talk about refunding the police for the idea of better training, much more training. We are totally undertrained for the responsibilities that are expected of our young men and women today. And we also need better equipment. Uh, there's so much more that police can do if properly supported. But government's going to have to figure it out that, uh, because that's what we elect the government for. But unfortunately, as we've seen in Washington, uh, they just don't seem to be able to get their act together. And at the state level, state after state, uh, in New York State is the prime example. Criminal justice reform's been a disaster. Uh, by basically uh, taking away what few powers the police have to control behavior in the streets, and where there's been more of an attention focused on the defendants and the rights of defendants than on the victims. So the world turned upside down the last couple of years, and hopefully uh, that upside down or that pendulum swing begins to go back the other way. I want to get to audience questions. So here's the, the last question from me. And there's a lot of things we didn't get to cover. Um, well, hopefully so we'll they'll, uh, they'll, they'll get the book and the, the answers of it, answers of in the book. <laughs> Not all of them. Uh, but many, many of them. That We're, we're still wanna, trying to figure a lot of it out. Yes. Um, but it's a very robust book. Uh, I, I want to end my questions where your book begins. And you begin the book talking about the searing and horrible and tragic assassination of two good cops Officers Lou and and Ramos and I was U.S. Attorney at the time. This was just before Christmas of 2014, and I was able to attend the funeral service of Officer Lou, not of Officer Ramos. And I was very moved by how you spoke about the role of cops and how cops run towards the danger when most people run away from it. I was also struck in reading about it in the book. I don't remember if I read about it at the time. In what you said when you arrest Officer Rafael Ramos's children at his funeral. And you talked about the issue of seeing people. And there was a woman you dealt with named Sweet Alice previously in your career in Los Angeles, right? Who said, you know why we like you, Chief? And she said, we see you, you see us. And you said to Officer Ramos's children, talking about their dad, maybe that's the reason for the struggle we're now in as a city, as a nation. Maybe it's because we've all come to see only what we represent instead of who we are. We don't see each other. You go on to say the police, the people who are angry at the police, the people who support us but want us to be better. Even a madman who assassinated two men because all he could see was two uniforms, even though they were so much more. We don't see each other. You delivered those words almost seven years ago. Are we seeing each other any better now? I think what I hope will come out of the George Floyd murder will be the ability to, going back to your first question, do black lives matter? 
and, and basically I'm talking about black lies, not the organization. Do black lies matter? They certainly do. And if you see the history and uh, you can understand why they matter. It's, do Jewish lies matter? In terms of all members of that faith have been through. Uh, every life really matters. And the idea is to try to find ways to see each other. And I purposely started the book with that uh, incident to bring people in uh, because I started the way I ended about the idea of seeing each other, finding common ground so we can see each other. But if we refuse to get on that common ground, uh, we're never going to have the opportunity to see each other or hear each other. Commissioner, again, it was, it's an honor and a treat to speak with you. Really excellent book. I suggest it to everyone. Thank you for your service and thank you for your time. Oh, thank you for your time, Preet. I know how valuable it is. I very much appreciate this. And to Temple Emanuel for basically hosting. Yes. My conversation with Commissioner Bill Bratton continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week by talking about a couple of incredible people we recently lost. In the space of just six days, America lost two giants of the bench. On Tuesday, Judge Jack Weinstein, a federal judge who served seemingly forever in the Eastern District of New York and Brooklyn, passed away at the age of 99. Widely known as an activist judge, I think that's a fair characterization, Weinstein spent 53 years on the bench, fighting for civil rights and working to change the criminal justice system from within. Some of his opinions were controversial. He was sometimes overturned by the circuit court, but he felt strongly about what justice meant and how he could help achieve it. He was bold and legendary, and in many ways challenged the status quo for federal judges up until he retired just last year at the age of 98. I did not know Judge Weinstein particularly well personally, although I did have the honor and privilege of attending a brown bag lunch with him a few years back for clerks of the Eastern District of New York. The other giant of the bench we lost last week. On June 9th, Judge Robert Katzman, who until recently served as the chief judge in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, died after a battle with pancreatic cancer. He was 68. Judge Katzman was also no ordinary judge or ordinary person. He was kind and compassionate, cared deeply about the integrity of the law, and had a profound impact on everyone around him. You probably haven't heard of him, so let me give you a little bit of his background. Judge Katzman was nominated to a seat on the U.S. Court of Appeals by President Bill Clinton back in 1999. And in 2013, when I was a U.S. attorney, he became the chief judge, a position he held until August of 2020. Bob Katzman grew up in Forest Hills, Queens, one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the country, with a large immigrant population in New York City. He got multiple degrees. He got his undergraduate degree at Columbia. He got a master's at Harvard. He got a PhD at Harvard. And then he got a law degree from Yale Law School. He was the first federal judge to hold a PhD in the study of government. And as many have noted, his study of the relationship between Congress and the courts probably gave him a leg up in understanding governmental processes in a way few others did. Throughout his career, Judge Katzman was dedicated to the cause of immigrants and immigration. He was the son and grandson of Jewish refugees who fled Germany and Russia during the Holocaust. That passion and interest caused Judge Katzman to create the Immigrant Law Corps in 2014, the country's first nonprofit fellowship program designed to provide counsel to immigrants by matching them with legal aid so they could get the representation they needed and deserved. 
They represented non-citizens who were detained, impoverished, or at risk of deportation. Judge Katzman and I talked about immigration many times over the years, including when I was chief counsel to Senator Schumer on the Judiciary Committee and considering legislation relating to immigration. In 2016, Judge Katzman presided over the largest naturalization ceremony in the history of Ellis Island, thanks largely to the CORE program. I'm sure he was very happy that day. Judge Katzman also cared deeply about civic engagement and the important role it plays in preserving democracy. In 2014, he launched Justice for All, Courts and the Community, which was an initiative to foster an understanding for the courts and the law through community and school outreach programs. During the pandemic, the program even made live audio streams of courtroom sessions available to the public for the very first time. In 1993, before Bob Katzman himself was a judge, he helped move along the Senate confirmation of the late, great Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and helped her prepare for the hearing. Ginsburg has said of that experience that she could not have been more wisely counseled. Six years later, Justice Ginsburg is the one who swore in Judge Katzman to his judgeship. She said at the time about Judge Katzman, quote, he brings an enormous store of knowledge to his new commission, along with intelligence and personal qualities important in sound judging, an inquiring mind, extraordinary diligence, patience, and a readiness to listen and to learn, end quote. He was a friend to so many, myself included. To clerk for Judge Katzman was to win the jackpot. Sure, it was a great credential. And sure, Judge Katzman was a feeder judge to the Supreme Court. But more importantly, if you clerked for Judge Katzman, or even more broadly, came across him in life, he became a lifelong mentor and cheerleader. I can't tell you how many times I would have lunch with a judge or run into him at an event or a legal conference, and he would pull me aside. And what did he want to talk about? One of his former law clerks, how they were doing in the office, or how they were doing in their career generally, how he could help them advance in their career, and in some cases, how he could help them become judges in their own right. What he cared about was other people, people who were close to him, people he could help, not about himself. Judge Katzman was a wonderful judge, scholar, teacher, mentor, citizen, and person. And I don't know a soul who thought otherwise. Litigants respected him. His clerks revered him. To the families of Judge Katzman and Judge Weinstein, I am so sorry for your loss. It is also our loss. May they rest in peace, and may we never forget their service to this country. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Commissioner Bill Bratton. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytunedatcafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. The CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jennifer Korn, Chris Boylan, and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. 
I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.